0: Good day everyone, we've come to part 9 in our series as we continue exploring issues concerning the character of God as he is revealed in his word. Today we're going to be talking about statements and principles, statements and principles. Now in order to make sense of this topic, we have to first define these two words in their proper context as used. A statement is just anything that is stated. Whether something is spoken or written, it is stated, so it is a statement. But not every statement can be taken at face value. Statements have to be properly understood and interpreted. For example, speaking of God's protection of those who put their trust in Him, we read in Psalm 91 and verse 4 He shall cover thee with his feathers. And under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. This is a statement. But then the statement must be understood. Because you have to ask the question, Does God have wings? Does God have feathers? The writer of the text does not expect us to start believing that God looks like a bird of some sort with wings and feathers. No. God does not have wings and feathers. So when it comes to certain statements, you have to say, that is what it says, but what does it actually mean? In other words, you have to use a principle to interpret statements. Rather than thinking that God has feathers and wings, a more mature approach would be to realize that the writer is using a figure of speech, a metaphor it is called in this case a metaphor in which he is using the protection that a mother hen gives to its young chickens by sheltering and covering them under its wings, protecting them from the rain and the storm, and he's using this as a means of illustrating God's protection for his children. We confirm this by turning to Matthew. When the Jews rejected Jesus in lamenting the destruction which was coming upon their city, Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to warn thee, how often I wanted to gather thy people together even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. And shortly after he said that in Luke 21 verse 20, he said, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation or the destruction of it is nigh, it's close. So this confirms that what I'm saying is placing the correct understanding of the text, that the prophet is using a hen protecting her chickens as a metaphor to illustrate God's protection of his children. Now, without properly applying principles to statements, we will be left in confusion in many parts of the Bible. And yes, many people are left in confusion because of what seems to be a lot of contradictions in the scriptures. In fact, over the years, I have heard some people say that they do not believe the Bible because it is full of contradictions. I must say, however, that there are absolutely no contradictions in the Bible. Only that which seems to be a contradiction due to the lack of applying right principles of interpretation on the part of the reader. The person who is looking to find contradictions will find it, but I will assure you that the divine imprint is upon the words of Scripture and when the Holy Spirit brings a person to see things in their proper light, all that seems to contradict disappear like vapor and is replaced by clear understanding. Only by the Spirit of God can the Bible be clearly seen to be perfectly consistent and in harmony with every part, in all of its parts. The Bible was written by over 40 different writers, and they all lived in different places and at different times, during a period which stretches over 1500 years. Yet all of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. They came from all different walks of life. Some were prophets, some were kings, some shepherds, some doctors like Luke in New Testament was a doctor, some fishermen, some farmers, etc. And yet it all comes together in perfect harmony. But many sometimes do not know how to deal with things that might seem to be a contradiction. And that is why we are looking at statements and principles of understanding them. Now when you read about the first destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in the Old Testament times, We are told that God destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But we are also told that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And also we are told, elsewhere, that Israel, the people themselves, that is, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Well, who did? In Daniel 9.14 it says, Therefore has the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord or God is righteous in all His works, which He does. For we obeyed not His voice. So it says clearly that the Lord brought the disaster upon them. But if you turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles 36 and verse 17, it says, "Therefore He brought upon them the king of the Chaldeans, that is, King Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion." Upon young man or maiden or old man or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. Now, notice here that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. That is how Daniel and the prophets ended up in Babylon. Thousands were slaughtered, but he and others were taken as captives to Babylon. But let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 11. It says, Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law even by departing from it, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. In verse 15 of Daniel 9, it continues, it says, And now, O Lord, our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renown, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. And it is even more explicit in Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah is addressing the people. Jeremiah 36 and verse 23. So they shall bring out all your wives and your children to the Chaldeans, and you shall not escape out of their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Notice, you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. So notice it says God destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It said Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed it. It said the people themselves destroyed it. So how do we reconcile this and bring this all together? Let's take a roundabout way in the book of Ezekiel and come right to who really destroyed Jerusalem then. The prophet Ezekiel, who lived during the time of their destruction, he was shown in vision the idolatry of Israel and the abominable practices that the people had gotten involved in. While he is in vision, God is talking with him and explaining what he is showing to the prophet. In Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, He said, Furthermore unto me, Son of man, do you see what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here? That I should go far away from my sanctuary? But turn thee yet again, and you shall see greater abominations. So notice that God is saying to Ezekiel that their abominations, the abominations of the people, will cause him to go far away from them. But there's more. Ezekiel 8, verse 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a name for the sun god. For the heathen worshippers and the nations around them. But this had now entered Israel and those who were supposed to be the worshippers of the true God were now caught up in sun worship. When even the women of Israel were weeping for Tammuz, it means that the whole nation was involved. But it goes on. Verse 15. Then he said unto me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn yet again, and you shall see even greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. In other words, Ezekiel is being shown what is happening even in the temple among the priesthood. The innermost part of the temple was where the presence of God's glory was manifested in the Old Testament times. But notice what God is showing the prophet Ezekiel. It says, And behold, At the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 5 and 20 men, that's 25 men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, we will see that the worship of the true God was always having to compete with sun worship as the enemy would always seek to entice the people into these pagan practices. And at this point, even the people of God had gotten deeply involved in this pagan practice. There were always 24 priests on each shift of the temple. And so the 25 men seen here were all these priests plus the high priest. So even the whole priesthood had become corrupted with sun worship. Then Ezekiel is shown in vision, the presence of God being withdrawn from the temple of Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubims. So God is departing from them. Verse 19, and the cherubims lifted up their wings and lifted up from the earth in my sight when they went out out This is symbolic of the guardian angels of God the protectors of the city leaving the city they're going out Ezekiel 11:23 and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city So then Ezekiel who lived also during this time is writing what God had shown him would be the cause Of the destruction of Jerusalem. After years and years of sending prophets to warn the people so they could turn from their wickedness, the people of Israel had killed the prophets, they had rejected their warnings, even as they dug themselves deeper and deeper into the abominable practices of sun worship. Finally, their cup of iniquity was full, and God removed his presence and protection from among them giving them up to the false gods which they wanted to worship. As we saw in last week's study, dear friends, this means that God gave them up. Their destruction was coming. They would not heed the messages of warning and they killed the messengers who brought the warning until God could do no more than leave them to reap the harvest which their own hands had sown. It is in this sense That the prophet writes that God destroyed them, not because he did, but because he left them to themselves when they no longer wanted him around. Throughout their history, God had worked mightily on behalf of the people of Israel. He had parted the Red Sea and led them across. And 40 years later, he had parted the River Jordan so that they could walk across it and he led them over into Canaan. Over and over again, he had delivered them from their enemies without them even having to lift a finger, even from multiple nations who had joined themselves together for their destruction. He had given them bountiful harvests, even when drought and famine were in other places. Yet the people had turned away from their merciful Savior and provider, forcing him now to withdraw his presence from them. So whatever happened to them thereafter would be of their own choosing. It would be the reaping from their own sowing. It is thus that the people are said to have destroyed Jerusalem. The king of Babylon was on the warpath, conquering other nations and taking over control of them to expand his empire. Many of the heathen nations were already conquered, and he was still going and conquering and expanding. Those who resisted were killed and many were scattered throughout different lands while others were taken as slaves back to their own land. Many of the nations around Israel were taken and Israel was next in line. Without the protection of God on their side, there was nothing to stop the king of Babylon. And three times, three times in 606 BC, in 594 BC, And in 586 BC, he invaded. And each time he killed more and took more captives and burned their smaller surrounding cities. But in 586 BC, finally, the city of Jerusalem and the majestic temple built by Solomon nearly 900 years earlier was burned to the ground. So in reality, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Yet this is written as God did it, or the people did it, or Babylon did it. Just depending on the perspective of the writer and the point that the writer is trying to make. We go back to a text which holds the key to correct interpretation of the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 2, 11-14 It says, For what man knows the things of a man? except the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God no man knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak of, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.11-14 So the natural mind, that is the mind that is not directed by the Holy Spirit, cannot receive the deep eternal truths of God's divine character and nature. In fact, the real truth of God's character and ways is foolishness to the natural mind. We need the Holy Spirit in order to understand the deep things of God. The Spirit of God in the Word of God enables the spiritually minded searcher to discover the truth by comparing spiritual things With spiritual. And this means allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, as we're told in Isaiah 28 9 and 10, Scripture upon Scripture, line upon line. You see, dear listeners, God's ways and God's thoughts are infinitely higher than our human ways and our human thoughts. Besides, the Bible is written in human language, which is imperfect. Everything about humans is imperfect. And that is why God Himself reminds us. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Therefore, dear friends, we must allow God to tell us what he means when the Bible uses certain human words, certain statements to describe his ways and his doings. God must give us the true understanding of his word based on Principles of his character. Now, there is one very critically important principle which must be understood in order to correctly interpret statements about God's behavior. And it is this the Bible often says that God does that which he merely allows to happen or which he does not prevent from happening. Let me give an example. I remember growing up, we had a kerosene lamp, a kerosene lamp at the house. You know, people usually have this as a backup. We had power outages and stuff like that, so it would be good to have one. And my sister, who was a baby at the time, she always wanted to touch the shade of that lamp. And my father would always say, no, don't do it. And she would move away and run to her mom. But as soon as no one is looking, she goes again to try to touch the shade of the lamp. Over and over, my father would say, no. And she would turn away and run. But she was fascinated by the flame, by the light flickering on the inside. And she wanted to touch it. So I remember one time when she was going to touch it and she thought nobody was looking. My father was standing there and he watched her. And he let her touch it. My father said, look, if she goes and knocks it over when nobody's looking, then that can cause a fire and burn the place down. So he let her touch it. And when she touched it, she screamed in pain because it's hot and she ran to her mother. Now, that was an important lesson because at least he no longer had to worry about her trying to touch it again when nobody's looking and possibly knocking it over and causing a fire. Because having been burned on her fingertips that one time, she wouldn't do it again. So that was wisdom that he was exercising. But here's the point. He didn't burn her, but he allowed it to happen. He never prevented it from happening, but for a very important reason, he allowed it to happen. God knew that after his departure, Israel would be destroyed. But what more could he do? What more could the Almighty do? They had made it clear that they did not want him. And so, heartbroken, he allows them to have their choice. By choosing other gods, they had taken away his right to remain with them he could find no one to stand in the gap for their nation, to give him the right to remain with them. And so heartbroken, he gives them up. If the gods of their choosing are really God, it is now their opportunity to step in and to prove this. Let them step in and protect Israel from our enemies and show that you're really God. And over and over again, when it gets to this point, They would cry out to God in their distress when their enemies surround them. And he steps in and he delivers them. And yet they always go right back to their idolatry. But with their cup of iniquity full, he could no more go back. We see an example of this in Judges chapter 10 and verse 14 where it says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. So God says, Okay, those are the gods you want. It's their turn to prove that they're God. So he did not prevent their destruction and the destruction of Jerusalem, but he was not the destroyer of them either. But according to the Hebrew way of writing, a way of writing that was very common in the East, And even to this day, that which God permits or does not prevent from happening is written as though God did it himself. This was just a cultural way of speaking, and today, many Bible scholars now recognize this. It is considered as a figure of speech used by the Hebrew prophets, and it is known as the Hebrew idiom of permission. An idiom is a figure of speech in which a statement is not to be taken literally just as it reads, but it must be interpreted by principles. Every language has its own idioms. For example, today we may say that such and such a person kicked the bucket. Now if you were to take that literally, you may think that the person is irresponsibly kicking over a bucket And spilling its contents but we know that it means that a person died it's just an idiomatic expression it's just an idiom we know that if someone says it's raining cats and dogs outside we shouldn't take that as it reads either you wouldn't get a pet by running outside and trying to catch one all you would get is drenched because it's raining very heavily we also know That when someone says not to put all your eggs in one basket, it usually has nothing to do with eggs. It merely means that you should diversify your options and not risk losing everything in one place. For one person, this might mean don't send out just one job application, send out to different companies so that if one doesn't work out, another might. Or have a backup plan. A plan B, a plan C. And these are all examples of figures of speech. Idioms that we're familiar with. And every language and culture on the planet has them. What we might not have known is that one of the idioms of the Hebrews was to write that which God permits to happen with active verbs as if to say that he actually did it. And we wonder why they wrote that way. Hopefully, we'll be able to show why in a future study. But one notable Hebrew scholar, E.W. Bullinger, in page 824 of his book, entitled Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, he wrote, active verbs were used by the Hebrews to express not the doing of the thing, but the permitting of the thing that the person was said to do. In other words, not that they actually did it, but they permitted it. They allowed it. They did not prevent it. So then, we cannot run with every statement that we read and take it at face value because some statements are written as an idiom, a figure of speech. So we sometimes have to say, that is what it says, but what does it really mean? Which means we have to use some principle to properly get to the meaning of what the statement is saying. We will wrap up for today with another common example. It's taken from Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. In Joshua 11.20 it says, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Now these passages state that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and the hearts of Israel's enemies. Now let's apply a principle. How many of you, on this study, would ask your child to do a certain task? But you would arrange things in such a way that they could never get it done. And then you would turn around and punish them for not getting it done. How many would do that? I don't think that there are any hands up at this time. And why would you not do such a thing? Because that would not be just. That would be cruel and tyrannical to say the least. To do such a thing to a poor child or to anyone else for that matter would be the work of a cold-hearted tyrant. So do you really believe that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could not let the people go and then punished him for not letting them go? What would that make God out to be if he did that thing? Is God a cruel, unjust and heartless tyrant? And if we ourselves would never do such a cruel thing to our child, do we believe that God would actually do this to his creatures? Are we then more compassionate than God Are we more merciful than God is? Because if we say we would never do it, but God does it, that's what we're actually saying. Understand, dear friends, Bible language describes God as doing what he merely permits. People have the freedom of choice to respond positively to God in voluntary submission to his will or to respond negatively by rejecting his will and resisting his spirit. In other words, people hardened their own hearts by resisting God's spirit and rejecting his love and his truth. This is what Pharaoh did. Hence, in another place, we read, But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, and listened not unto them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.15 And in verse 32, it says, And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also neither would he let the people go. What does also mean? That means the other times he hardened his heart himself too. The Bible says in Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. So God does not harden any person's heart, dear friends, but the Spirit of God persistently rejected is at last withdrawn from the sinner, leaving the soul fixed in its choice, hardened in its choice, and having now to face the consequences. But in many places, the Bible writers use the Hebrew idiom of permission by expressing things in language which makes it seem as if God is actually the one that's doing it, when God is actually merely allowing things to run its course. In other words, he's not preventing the consequences from coming upon them. It's an idiom which many misunderstand and thus end up blaming God for things that he would never do. But we are wiser now, aren't we? It is my prayer, dear friends, that God will continue to teach us as he prepares our hearts so that we can relate to him as he desires for us to. May God continue to bless you all with wisdom and understanding As you continue to know him aright. Thank you for being with us. And next week we will pick up where we leave off this week. Have a blessed week.